I'd like to say something. Well, Neville, I'm sure we'd all be fascinated to hear what you have to say. You know how in the last Harry Potter, everybody's spent years thinking that Neville Longbottom is just kind of this funny, inconsequential character. You might not even know his name. But then he ends up using the sword of Gryffindor to destroy the final Horcrux, the big snake thing, and kind of is like one of the biggest heroes in defeating Voldemort. I never know what you're going to say, but yes, I know that I know that scene and that plot very well. <laughs> Do you think Novavax could be the Neville Longbottom of the vaccine world? <laughs> Novavax could be the Neville Longbottom of that vaccine world, yes. Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel, continuing our special series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Overmall, expert in both vaccines and Harry Potter, about all of the different vaccines available across the world, approved and not, and the different roles they might play globally and here in the U.S., and hopefully putting an end to the pandemic. Here's our conversation. So, Sarah, you are not just here to talk about Harry Potter and the wonderful world of wizardry with me, but also to walk me through the wonderful world of vaccinations. And I want to just go through each of them here with you to learn not just what the vaccines are and like how effective they are and everything, but also what role each of them is going to play or is playing um, here in the U.S. and also abroad, especially considering some of the large and scary outbreaks like we're seeing in India, concern about variants. Um, does that sound cool to you? Absolutely. And if I'd known that this was going to be a Harry Potter kickoff, I would I would have gotten my metaphors ready. But I think I have one to start with. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, uh, first off, the most obvious, maybe you would have thought the same for this. Uh, I, I feel like probably the Harry Potter of, of the vaccine world, if you will. You're a wizard, Harry. Pfizer. I'm a what? A wizard and a thumping good and I'd wager. Um, quickly emerged as the main character among vaccines first approved in the U.S. Tell me what I need to know about how Pfizer is operating in the real world. Yeah, definitely the Harry Potter with Moderna and Johnson & Johnson rounding out as, as Ron and uh, Hermione, <laughs> but we'll get to them. Um, yeah, so Pfizer was first authorized in the U.S., and it was on a new technology called messenger RNA, which is this cool thing that had never really been proven to work before in, in trials. But as we all now know, um, the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective against the broad coronavirus and 100% effective against severe coronavirus that hospitalizes people, that causes, you know, these really damaging side effects, which, by the way, the next two are going to talk about same thing on the 100%. Mm -hmm. But um, one other thing about Pfizer that's important to know is that their vaccine has to be stored at ultra-cold freezer temperatures. And so logistically, there are some advantages to the other ones, uh, just in terms of getting vaccines to different areas, and especially as we move into perhaps a more fragmented distribution of, um, you know, your standard doctor's office doing this or maybe mobile clinics doing this, you might see Pfizer less in those scenarios. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like right now I know a lot of people 
who have gotten Pfizer, I mean, you know, especially in the U.S., is it similar in the rest of the world, like in Europe or other places? Or is Pfizer more of like a a U.S. thing? Yeah, not quite similar because Pfizer has not done a lot of uh, deals globally just yet. Hmm. They also have only pledged 40 million shots so far to this global vaccine equity effort known as the COVAX facility. And that is the engine where especially a lot of low-income countries are going to be getting vaccines from. Hmm. All right, next up. Moderna. Hermione, right? Yeah, she's Hermione. You're saying it wrong. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. (laughs) (laughs) All right, tell tell me about her. Well, same thing with the messenger RNA technology that was used by Pfizer and really basically comparable results. 94% uh, effective against broad infection, 100% effective against severe infection, Mm -hmm. and they use a standard freezer, so a little bit different. There's more logistical ease in getting them out to uh, different areas. I, for instance, talked to um, Healthcare for the Homeless in Baltimore about the vaccines that they were using, and they had been using J&J up to the pause and Moderna, but not Pfizer because of the freezer method. Mm. So, for instance, that's, that's an example of how, you know, the logistical things matter in these moments. Uh-huh. Another thing about Moderna is that this is the first product they've ever brought to market. They have had a lot of government assistance to do that, but this also is kind of a validation of the technology that they're using, this messenger RNA platform. The Hermione uh, analogy really works. Like, uh, you know, kind of overachiever, doesn't need the the freezer, is going to be putting a lot of work in, and also first in its family to become a wizard, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> that works so well. Wow, this is really going. <laughs> All right, next one works really well, too. So uh, J&J, kind of a Ron Weasley, um, definitely one of the main three here in the U.S., has had a couple bumps along the way, but ultimately... Still really central and imp- and important, right? Yeah, a couple of bumps, but has its own unique advantages, just like Ron. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, I think that last time we spoke, I had just gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, yeah. and the federal government had paused use of it yeah. while they... Uh, investigated blood clots. Use has resumed again. Mm -hmm. There are distinct advantages to having a single-dose shot that only has to be refrigerated. Also, Johnson & Johnson has pledged far more vaccines to global initiatives like COVAX than Mm. Pfizer or Moderna, which hasn't pledged any to COVAX so far. So Johnson & Johnson has not been written off on global distribution for sure. It remains to be seen how much it will factor back into the U.S. numbers, but I do think it'll still be there. They're distributing it to states already again. Um, And there are going to be people who still see an advantage in a single dose shot. Mm. Just curious, like if we do see people potentially hesitant to take J&J after everything that happened a couple weeks ago, do you think we could see a situation where the U.S. does just like totally sort of back away from it and is like Moderna, Pfizer, and we'll maybe give our Johnson & Johnson abroad or something like that? It's possible. The reason that I'm not too sure about that, and I think, frankly, the government isn't too sure about that, is because they want to have a backup plan. And Johnson & Johnson is still a pretty good one. We don't have AstraZeneca working through either its authorization yet or its own manufacturing issues. And then Novavax hasn't filed yet either. So I think they're loath to give up something that could still be, you know, a reserve supply. All right. Let's talk about the other two vaccines that aren't approved for use yet in the U.S., but are being studied for how effective they are here. Um, First off are Come From Behind Hero, our Neville. 
Neville, will you join me, please? Novavax. Uh, I honestly hadn't really thought or heard much about this vaccine until I read your story. Um, but tell me why it's important. <laughs> yeah, well, it um, is also, like Moderna, coming from a small company that has not brought a product to market before. This is a Maryland-based company that has been studying for years now how to use essentially bug cells to develop the viruses and inject them and, and have your body learn how to respond to a virus. So that's how that vaccine works. Wait, you said bug cells? Bug cells, literally bug cells. Yeah, they're wow. using moth cells. But um, this bug cell approach has been used in other vaccines before. So we know that it works with other bug cells. Um, they have a kind of unique technology where they also have these little nanoparticles that go in um, to give your body instructions about what it should do. So it's an interesting technology and they have some really good results, especially for a sort of dark horse coming from behind. Uh, more than 90% effective broadly. And they also have a little bit more logistical ease than say something like Pfizer. Also, they have donated or pledged to donate many, many vaccines globally. So it could be really important for preventing outbreaks like what we're seeing in India right now. Absolutely. And in fact, they have partnership with the Serum Institute of India, which is one of the biggest global pharmaceutical manufacturers to produce their vaccine. Serum hmm. Institute has said that they could probably produce 1.1 billion doses but they're running out of materials because of, you know, just the, the pressure on the system and on export limits. Uh, and so that is the real roadblock for Serum Institute right now. But if they can hit those goals, that's going to go a huge way towards the COVAX facility aims for vaccines and for helping India out. Hmm. All right. Next up is AstraZeneca, one we've talked a lot about before. I'm trying to think of a Harry Potter analogy, like maybe... Draco Malfoy? Famous Harry Potter. Can't even go into a bookshop without making the front page. You know, like Slytherin <gasps> sort of has the, the image problems that have gone along with, you know, like being shut down in Europe for a while. It still doesn't have approval in the U.S. But, you know, in the end, Draco is still an important part in the fight for good in the wizarding world. Like, does that sound right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like maybe a little bit misunderstood. We, we get to learn more about Draco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with AstraZeneca, like you said, it has had its stumbles, both um, in terms of these blood clot concerns, similar to the ones with Johnson & Johnson, and some frustrations with the government over uh, some questions about their data, which has led them to lag on filing. They thought they were going to file with the U.S., for instance, by mid-April. They mm -hmm. obviously haven't. Um, and we don't know yet when they're going to do that. And now they've been kicked out of a manufacturing facility for Johnson & Johnson to use it. So there's problems there too about when they could get production back online. Mm. But like Novavax, they have donated many doses to the COVAX facility in other countries, and they are still widely being used in other countries. Uh, despite the blood clot concerns that led to some pauses last month, there are at least 50 countries that have authorized their vaccine for use. Looking down the line, you know, maybe like six months or a year, do you think we're looking at a situation where all of these problems involving AstraZeneca, like the scare over blood clots, the manufacturing problems, that those are sort of just the past and it is like a, a key player in hopefully putting an end to the pandemic? I think that is a pretty likely uh, outcome of all of this because we're learning that while there are some blood clot risks with the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson Johnson one, they aren't very large risks. And they, in fact, are kind of in line with the risks that we know happen with other medicines like birth control pills. Um, and so I think that we're going to see as we dose more people that, yes, there is a risk with these, but not the same risk as getting 
um, or dying from COVID-19. And both Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca have big networks. They're in this for the long haul, and we could be in this for the long haul. We could need booster shots down the line. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back in just a minute after a message from our sponsor. Let's move on to the other vaccines that are not just not approved in the U.S., but they're also not being studied in the U.S. in clinical trials. Uh, The first of those is the Sputnik vaccine from Russia. Technically, the first COVID vaccine, right? Technically the first, although we didn't really have any data at that point, and there were a lot of um, criticisms globally of whether Russia was moving too fast to declare a sort of victory, um, because there is a, sort of a, a political aspect to which country gets this done first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have since learned from an article published in a medical journal that it is more than 90% effective, hmm. yet there are still questions. Um, for instance, Brazil this week actually rejected getting Sputnik vaccines imported to their country, even though they are dealing with a surge in coronavirus cases and need um, vaccines. But they said that they still have questions about the safety and manufacturing. It's kind of behind a curtain, and we don't have as much clarity about what they're doing as maybe some other manufacturers. But this is a vaccine that has gone out or is going out to a lot of countries around the world, right? Yes. Yes, it is, Um, especially other countries in Europe. And um, they've started actually to lean, they being European countries, to lean more on Sputnik when there were pauses and concerns about AstraZeneca. Hmm. Okay. um, There are also two COVID vaccines developed in China that I feel we don't really know the effectiveness of, right? Yeah, we don't really know the effectiveness of these two. And these ones are really interesting because we have even less information about them maybe than we do about Sputnik, even though both are applying um, for the World Health Organization to clear them for use. And if that happens, they get to join the COVAX facility too. And they can start providing, they already are providing to several countries, especially in the Middle East and Africa, but this will be a validation of them. Hmm. So one of the vaccines is made by Sinopharm, and it has not made data publicly available, but the company itself has said that it's roughly 79% effective in a trial in December. Um, and then there's Sinovac, which also doesn't have publicly available data, but it's been sent to Chile and Brazil, where it's between 50 and 56% effective, according to data that's been compiled there. So not as effective, maybe, as some of the others. And we don't really have answers yet on, say, how effective it is against severe disease, which is obviously probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely millions of these doses have been sent to other countries right now. Can I ask a weird question? Like if one of these vaccines isn't that effective and they decide like, oh, we should take Pfizer or Moderna or another vaccine that we developed down the line rather than, you know, Sinopharm or Sinovac. um, Is it like feasible that there could be a situation where some people have taken one vaccine that isn't as effective and then they're able to take another? Like, are there risks for that? Is that something that could happen? No, it's totally feasible. And there aren't really risks to it, although obviously it's going to be studied more. But um, the reason especially that it's quite feasible is that people are preparing for the idea that we could get booster shots or that we could find out in a year or a year and a half that our immunity is beginning to fade. Some of these vaccines could work especially well as booster shots, and some of the other ones might fade. But that also, you, you bring up a good point there, that also validates why there's still others in the vaccine race that haven't been 
approved or, or haven't finished their trials. We have things like Germany's CureVac, uh, which is still going through its phase three trials right now. GSK and Sanofi, two European companies that have been in the vaccine space for a very long time, um, are still working on multiple different trials, even though they're several authorized vaccines. And then you even have these weird sort of like one-offs where there's like a tobacco company that's literally researching a vaccine. Huh. Yeah. Given all of those different vaccines, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, you just listed like five more. We're, <laughs> we're close to like 15 or something. Given all of the different ones, the different efficacies, the possibility of boosters in the future, what sort of problems, if any, do you think could arise for like global coordination and in getting things back to normal and hopefully beating the pandemic? Well, I think that there's a few things. I think that we've realized that we've already stretched very thin the global manufacturing capacity for vaccines, especially since we have even more that might be coming online. So we have to figure out how to have a sustainable system to, if it's the case, continuously make all of these vaccines and have the materials ready for them, whether it be active ingredient or vials or stoppers or all all the little stuff. Uh Um, I think the other and, and perhaps more immediate issue is vaccine equity and the idea of vaccine diplomacy. So we do have multiple manufacturers that have pledged their vaccines to other countries, especially low-income countries. But these are manufacturers like AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, where there have been some safety concerns and some confidence issues. So I think a lot of health officials and, and government officials in general are worried about making it look like other countries are getting the inferior shots, Uh, especially if the U.S. does decide to unload its AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccines, which, for instance, they have said this week that they're going to be sending millions of AstraZeneca doses to India. Officials want to make sure that it doesn't look like they're unloading things that the U.S. didn't think was good enough for them. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Sarah Overmall from Politico's health team for joining me. If you want to follow more of her coverage, sign up for our daily health newsletter, Politico Pulse, at politico.com slash newsletters. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Pulse Check wherever you're listening. Pulse Check's senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.